Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Alright, hello, hello everybody and welcome back to another episode. I am very excited and honored to have Mr. Leif Van Boven. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure every single week, as we say. Happy Thursday to all. And of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, I, that could be that could be hours and hours, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, so I, uh, I am a professor in the psychology department at the University of Colorado Boulder. I am a social psychologist. Um, so I study how the mind works in social contexts. I have a, a particular interest in kind of the interface of political psychology and environmental psychology. Um, I teach a couple of graduate classes. I teach a couple of um, advanced undergraduate classes. I teach a, a lab in judgment and decision making that I think is a lot of fun. I think half of the students think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a little bit arduous, um, but, it, but, but everyone survives and they do well. So I've been at CU for um, almost 20 years. I came here in 2002. Um, I got my doctorate degree from Cornell University in psychology with a minor in behavioral economics. And um, before that, I graduated. My undergrad was from the University of Washington. And, um, you know, there was a time when I wasn't actually sure that I was going to go to to college. It just, it wasn't, didn't seem like it was kind of in the plans. I was actually planning on, uh, insofar as I thought about the future, like doing landscape work essentially, which, uh, you know, it was just a different career path. And then I thought, uh, you know what, I want to, this was in Maryland when I was in high school. And I thought, I want to go out to, uh, the coast where we've got family and it's really beautiful there. And, uh, so I was like, I, I guess I better go to college. So I go out by the Hang out oh, by the water funny. in the mountains. Yeah, it's funny how much a lot of these things are accidental. And then, um, I and I wanted to be, I wanted to kind of go into counseling. That's what I thought my uh, kind of new career path would be. And then I took a, a statistics and data analysis class, and I just really loved how we were learning about dealing with data. And I really was fascinated by the contrast that people seem to experience between like what the data say versus what their intuitions say. And I was like, I, I want to go into that field. So that kind of drew me in. And then the rest is history. Yeah. Well, we're happy to have you here in Boulder, man. I always say to people, um, if money wasn't like a, an option or a consideration when it came to college, I would have studied psychology and history because I love the way people think. And I love like the history of humans, but like, you know, we live in this economic system, so it made sense for me to study business, you know? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But let me give a plug for psychology and history. So let's go. You know, if you want to, if you want to participate in an appreciation of what the world is like, where the world came from, like we need a sense of history. I, I didn't take enough history. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I didn't, for whatever reason, like I just didn't take enough of those classes. I took like one or two maybe. And, uh, and I regret that I should have taken more history because, because we need to understand kind of how, how the world ended up being the way that it is. 
psychology. So yeah, if you want to pursue a career in psychology, you've got to go on for a number of years. But um, one of the main things we teach in the psychology major is how to engage in critical thinking about the way people are, the way they behave, the way they think, the way they feel, and how to really examine that critical thinking with data, how to really kind of apply what we know about analyzing data, the scientific method, and, and apply that to understanding human behavior. So obviously you get that all in business, but you get it in psychology too. Fair enough. Gotta stick yeah, I was just... Major. Yeah, do it, man. I love it. I love thinking about the way people think. And I obviously spend too much time thinking about the way I think. But here, I keep evolving. So that's great. Uh, is there a particular reason you ended up in Boulder? Or is it just the job? Did you, is there a community drew you here kind of thing? If, well, it's a great community. I mean, I'm super lucky to have ended up here. Um, we all? Yeah, yeah, we de- we definitely are. And, um, and we even ended up here when things were a, a tiny bit less expensive. Um, you know, just kind of a quick aside, I think people outside of the, of the kind of academic university system don't always understand like how, how looking for jobs actually works in a, in a university context. So, um, jobs don't come up all that often within a particular department. So, you know, maybe every couple of years, the typical department will be hiring. And when they do come up, there are just a ton of applicants. It's just a really, really competitive environment. And so um, I was very lucky to, to end up with this opportunity. A lot of people would love to have this opportunity, but it's usually not the case in the academic world that you're like, oh, where am I gonna go work and grace with my presence? Like, it just doesn't work out that way. You're like, where can I possibly land a job? Uh, mm-hmm. And then you hope that something good turns up. So fair enough. Yeah. Everything's hustle and competition in the society that we've developed. Now, speaking of society, we always love to talk about big picture ideas on this show. And I say we, and it's like kind of my show. It's my company's show, but I always love talking about big ideas to try and inspire people to go out and make changes in their life. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what what is your opinion of what makes a good life, a virtuous life, a meaningful life as a psychologist? Yeah, that is a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, this is, a, so it's a question that we don't ask ourselves enough because, and maybe we'll get into this later, but the things that typically draw our attention, the things that we end up kind of pursuing in our daily life often are not the things that are the most meaningful and important. But at the same time, almost everyone, if you kind of pause and reflect on your like deeper values and, and what's really important, like there's a lot of similarity across people, family, social connections, friendships, um, being a meaningful part of a community, having you know connections to, to folks around you, um, doing work that has some kind of a positive difference in the world. You know, this question of like, am I making things better generally in the world? Like we, people care a lot about that. Um, being healthy, you know, <laughs> healthy, well-rested, wise. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that we all kind of know we should be doing. We know we would be better off, that that our lives would be better if we did these things. Sometimes sometimes we just kind of get distracted. It varies a little bit from person to person, but we're more similar than we are different. I love that. I think that's so true. And I'm going to ask you this question knowing the answer already. Are you familiar with the Harvard happiness study? The Harvard happiness study, which... Oh, no, you're not. 
Tell me about the Harvard happiness study. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Really? Okay. Now I'm excited. So I can explain right. it. So there, so there were the, there was this study at Harvard. It's like one of the longest standing studies of like men over like a 70 year period. And they got two groups of men. There was one who was like more well off, like the, the Ivy league dudes. And then there was like some poor people from the suburbs of Boston and they followed their lives all the way through until like old age. And every, every year they would send them surveys and ask them, uh, what are you doing with your life? How do you feel about yourself? And this huge overarching conclusion to, you know, to butcher a, a very uh, well done study by, a, you know, a 24 year old realtor. Um, the conclusion that they had is that happiness comes from strong, meaningful relationships with people. And it's like, that's going to make you happier and it's going to make you really healthy. And like you said, I think we do tend to focus in this country a lot on materialistic things, which kind of tends to lead people down the wrong path and they end up stressed out and dissatisfied with what they're doing every day, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that for sure. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, yeah, um, that, I, I have I have heard of that study, but um, you, you put it in, in uh, beautifully succinct terms. Um, I mean, again, we might get into this, but I, I don't, I don't want to be too, um, I, I both want to be critical of material values, but at the same time, acknowledge the really important fact that having access to material resources provides us with a huge amount of security. So, you know, is, is pursuing wealth for its own sake a good thing? Possibly not. But it is definitely true that that when you are more well off, um, kind of materially, you just have a lot more security against the challenges that life throws your way. So, like one of the things that poorer people will often confront is like you, you like your car breaks down, and this happened to my son recently, like because he owns a Subaru, so it needs like the head gaskets replaced mm -hmm. uh, after like a hundred thousand miles, and it's like a three thousand thirty five hundred dollar expense, and you know, if you can't repair the car, like you can't drive to work, you can't go see people, you can't do all these things. And so, you know, what's the difference if you're someone who has more resources that can sort of weather that income shock versus if you're someone who has much, many fewer resources and you're like, that's going to throw you off for a long time. It can really send you into a kind of tailspin. So like, yeah, we, we want to be careful about not overweighting materialistic concerns, but at the same time, we want to think about structuring our lives in such a way that we have this kind of security that can weather these unexpected events that, and just not, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I was really, really struck last weekend, I guess, by the New York times column, Nicholas Kristoff. He had this, this piece about the impact of the COVID pandemic on poorer people in rural Oregon and just kind of went down this list of, of people who he knew and how their lives were just totally disrupted by like losing their job in a restaurant. And um, so there, I mean, there are a lot of good studies out there about the sort of the things that you should build in life, but we also really want to think hard about how can we structure a world where, or structure our own lives, where as many of us as possible have some protection against these kind of unexpected shocks. Yeah. And we can talk about that a bit later as well. Yeah, there's definitely this distinction that we all know we need to make a living, but some of us can forget that we also need to live at the same time. I don't know if you know what I mean by when I say that, yeah. you know, take yeah. a moment to breathe in the air, smile and just grab your wife or your girlfriend or your husband or your son and just go fishing or go for a walk. 
Um, so on that note, how do you recommend people make good decisions given your background with understanding how people think? Because I always tend to recommend people kind of when they feel really good about something, you know, that whole intuition, not the not the cerebral cortex decision making, but like the animal instinct, like I have a good feeling about it. And that's just like trying to communicate something that can't be put into words when you say, oh, I feel good about it. So I did it. That's like your spirit or your whatever. So I'm just how, how do you recommend people make good decisions? It depends a lot on the kind of decision, right? I mean, the way that we, I mean, kind of what I was alluding to earlier, if looking at your own life, looking at just, you know, sort of the way things are structured and asking about your values I mean, that general approach is a really useful approach. Like in a particular decision context, what are the important considerations? What are the values? How much should they, how much do I think they should influence my decision? And it varies from one context to another, right? So um, if you're making the decisions about like who you're going to spend the rest of your life with, if you're making like sort of romantic decisions, there's a set of calculations or considerations that are very different from if you're like buying a car perfect formula for love right there is a formula for love i'm not going to repeat I'm it i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean so it varies from one context to another i think what we need to be careful of is relying too much on our intuition our gut instinct because our intuitions and gut instinct like that that can get pushed around really really easily right Sunny days versus cloudy days mm. will make things seem more or less appealing, whether we had a good night's rest or not a good night's rest, whether we just had an argument, whether we're hungry. Like there are all these examples of um, kind of extraneous factors that can have a pretty substantial influence on, on the decisions that people make. There's a couple of experiments, for example, that show that um, judges give harsher sentences when it's later in the day and they're hungry. Mm -hmm than when it's yeah. earlier in the day, right? And so do we really want them making decisions based on their intuition when they're a little bit hangry? Probably not, right? So you really got to pay attention to what the domain is. Fair enough. Are you familiar with Simon Sinek's work at all? Yeah. I love, I love his work. And one of the things he talks about is obviously the why and how most people make decisions based on this why. So that's always struck, struck a chord with me and trying to be true to my, my true personality when I make big, important decisions. But as I was joking around before, I don't think you can like find someone you love and give them a bunch of points and be like, oh, she scored a 100 out of 100. So she's the one I should be with sometimes. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I get that, but people's moods will change. I don't know. Just I always feel like if something makes you feel really good, you should like go after it. And I feel like not enough people do that. People are, are worried about their risk mitigation, you know? Again, it depends a lot on the context. Like even in the, even in the, when we're thinking about who, who, who we're going to date or like, um, you know, who we're, who we're going to have a, a long-term relationship with, social science tells us there are some things we want to be kind of careful about, like, do we have similar views about having children? Mm -hmm. um, do we have similar kind of life goals? Do we have, um, you know, we, you don't need to be exactly the same, but do you have you know, at least somewhat similar values on, you know, I, I realize a lot of this sounds like very, very traditional, but you know, no, the research has kind of borne this out. Like you, like you really want to have, you don't want to set yourself up. So you've got a lifetime of conflict and those things can be harder to pay attention to when in the kind of heat of the moment, you're like, well, am I attracted to this person? Because in that case, like there are a lot of other cues that can be a little bit distracting. Like, ah, oh, we, 
we have totally different preferences about what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. But, uh, you know, the other person's really attractive. And so, yeah, I'd like to, you know, there are different considerations that come into play. Definitely. And yeah, and one of the things in the Harvard Happiness Study also mentions is not only do you want strong interpersonal relationships, you want healthy interpersonal relationships. You don't want to be in a, a relationship of conflict. Those who, who reported healthy relationships are most likely to have better health and happiness in their life. So that was really cool. But um, yeah, all right. So we're going to transition into talking about the even even bigger topics than yeah. uh, than personal subjective stuff. Um, how, how do you think we can use what we know about psychology to aid in these overarching global challenges that, you know, we could too many to, to name, you know? Yeah, too many to name, but let's let's name two of them. Uh, Bang. <laughs> climate change and COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're good. They're good examples, actually, of of these these problems, we call them um, wicked problems, where they're just like, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're so complex and so many different interrelated systems and um, understanding where the problems come from is really complicated, but also understanding the solutions can be really, really complicated. You know, COVID is kind of a good example too, because it really illustrates that as much as we kind of need technical solutions like a vaccine, it's really a social behavioral problem. It's really, and it really rests on kind of social behavioral solutions. Um, and even though like, obviously the, the development of the vaccines was um, remarkably fast. I mean, just an incredible human accomplishment. Um, we're probably a little bit overconfident here in the U S and kind of forgetting that like other parts of the world are not don't have access to the to the same kind of vaccines and and so the problem has not gone away let's let's not forget that same with climate change right they, we will need technical solutions but they're not going to be the only way to solve those challenges right we really need to think about large scale changes in social behavior large scale changes in culture and it's got to happen at all levels and um you know, how do we know about the way the human mind works? In every possible way, we need to think about um, where does the human, where do human natural human tendencies kind of present barriers to solving the climate challenge? And where can they help help us kind of smooth the transition um, to, to make it uh, kind of as, as least disruptive as possible? So on the problem side, I mean, there's just a, a ton of issues that with climate change make it difficult because it, you know, it feels far away. It, it often feels like it's just kind of off the, off the top of their priority list. So there are a lot of other things that we're worried about in, in society and the economy that seem like they're more urgent. And you know, it's, it, it's true that in the, in, the, in the scale of a human lifetime, climate change kind of feels far away. We don't if we wait around to where we really directly experience it, it's going to be too late, right? It's hard for us to understand this kind of exponential growth of, of a kind of changing climate system. It's hard for us to understand that we're, we need to take action today to prevent these really catastrophic effects a few years down the line. They're just a bunch of kind of natural human tendencies that focus us to the here and now and kind of make it too easy to ignore these other problems. Um, it's far away, both in terms of time and in terms of other people, right? If we think about who's going to be most effective, it's often not mm-hmm. people in our direct communities, especially those of us who are fortunate to live in, in relatively stable, secure places. So there are a lot of 
there are a lot of ways that uh, the psychology just makes it difficult to kind of acknowledge and really prioritize the need to address climate change. At the same time, if we think about what happens when we are finally able to implement broad scale policy changes, you know, let, let's say that we like lock ourselves into these pledges to get to net zero by, you know, 2050 or whatever goal we set for ourselves. Sure. Society is going to change hugely, right? The, the way our economy works is going to change hugely. If we look at the rest of the world, uh, we've got to figure out how to help developing societies continue to develop and enjoy the benefits of access to energy that we've enjoyed in this country Certainly. for you know, a century and a half. It, I, don't, I don't think anyone really seriously thinks, well, we ought to just, like, it, it's great for us. We've got this. And sorry, you guys didn't get in early enough to kind of mine the fossil fuels. Um, and so you, your society just doesn't get to develop, right? Those are huge problems. And as we think about the, the kind of policy solutions of regulation or taxation or, you know, whatever the kind of policy solution you, you, you decide you want to go with, that's going to entail huge human changes. And how can we smooth those over? How can we make whatever that transition is less disruptive, whether it's sort of changes to the workforce, changes to our daily habits about where we live, how we commute, how much energy we consume, what we eat. I mean, just all these things are going to change. Um, and it turns out we know a lot about how to make things a little bit easier, how to make difficult transitions a little bit less difficult. Can you tell me a little bit about what we know? <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about what we know. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that, um, one of the things we know is when we see a social context changing rapidly, it becomes easier for us to kind of join that change when we understand that everyone is kind of doing this, right? That, that it's a broad sort of cultural change, that there's large agreement socially behind making that change. It just, you know, you get sort of put in the stream and you're like, yeah, I can make that change. And this happens all the time, right? Think of, um, think of a less problematic example. Think of like smartphones. Mm-hmm. If you sort of wind back the clock 20 years, nobody had smartphones. I mean, it was just, nobody lived that way. And now like we've just massively changed the way that we interact with technology, with access to information. It's affected for better or worse, some of our kind of social interactions. And, you know, a lot of those changes, even though they were really, really massive in, in just what everyday life was like, they happened pretty easily. I mean, everyone was doing it. We understood that it was sort of tied to this optimism about the future. And we just sort of went along and, and made these pretty big changes in, in the way that we live. There are other things that are, um, you know, sort of less on the optimism um, side. They're more sort of societal problems that we've had to kind of deal with and overcome. So, um, you know, one of my favorite examples is, is uh, just the decline in smoking in, in the U.S., Um, huge public health concern. There was a time, you know, in the forties and fifties when it was viewed as kind of like smoking was viewed as sort of a healthy thing. Doctors did it, you know, go back and look at like television and like everyone in the doctor's office is smoking. It's kind of crazy. And there was huge resistance, obviously from tobacco industry about kind of publicizing some of the health risks. 
um, we overcame those. Like the, you know, the, the public decided we, we need to recognize this risk. It's, it's killing us. Um, and, and we did. I, I mean, obviously it's a problem that, that has not totally gone away. But, you know, when I was in high school, there was a, and this, so this was, um, you know, very late eighties, early nineties, like there was a, a smoking yard that like you'd go hang out in the smoking and people where all just, the cool kids went, where all the cool kids went. Like you, we, you know, you'd stop at the gas station on the way to high school and pick up your pack of cigarettes and you'd hang out in the smoking yard mm-hmm. and, uh, and nobody would do that. Now, like, that's just crazy. Like, you know, you look at the local high schools and yeah, there are kids who smoke, but um, it's not all the cool kids. And, and you see these really broad changes over a pretty short period of time, right? That's the key. And, and that's how we need to think about solving these problems. Another example, just quickly, is um, just the, the public response toward uh, to gay marriage, right? Yeah. I mean, relatively short time ago, there was just something you didn't you didn't talk about. It was hard to imagine that that our country would ever change in its views toward gay marriage. And then, like over a very very short span of time, it was like someone just flipped a switch, and we all just recognized, oh yeah, that <laughs> that like doesn't respect basic human rights, and our views change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we engineer those kind of changes and support them? That's the question we need to know the answer to. Yeah. And I think the answer, in my opinion, as, as someone who doesn't really know the answer is uh, I think like the innovators just need to hustle and hustle and grind and put in the work and trying to push the society into the right direction. Now, when the first example you brought up smartphones, it immediately makes me think of this theory of the, I think it's a theory still of the technological innovation curve, where there's the, the innovators are the first people to adopt the new technology. Then if you can keep selling it, you get into these early adopters and then it's called crossing the chasm when you go from early adopters to early majority. So I think it's like 3% is innovators, 7% early adopters, and then early majority is like 20%. So once you get past 10% of people adopting your ideas, it's the system tips and then everybody starts taking it on. So that's that's what we're that's what we're working on. And I think I'm I'm seeing the the tip with climate change right now in this decade happening, I, I would imagine. Could be. Yeah. It could be, I mean, in some of the research that we've done, it it's really clear that the majority of Americans recognize the reality of climate change. They're very concerned about climate change. There's kind of a disconnect that people don't fully appreciate how much other Americans are concerned about climate change. This is kind of the sense that we're more concerned than other people are, and that tends to happen much more so on, on the conservative side of things. So the average Republican in the U.S. Um, rec- understands that, that climate change is reality, understands we need to do something about it, is actually quite supportive of policies um, that might address climate change by putting some sort of price on carbon emission. But there's also this perception that the, av- so the average Republican thinks that the average Republican is much less concerned about climate change than they actually are. So there are these points, and this happens actually as you're kind of making that social transition, there's this point where the, the people's sort of private attitudes, their private views have, have crossed that chasm, like the tipping point has happened, but they don't understand that it's happened. And 
often in those kind of situations, we call them pluralistic ignorance. What you really need are kind of focal salient communicators who are saying, hey, th this, is what we're, this is what we're all thinking. Like you might not realize it, but we're all really worried about climate change and we need to do something about it. And then people kind of realize, oh yeah, I'm not the only one who's worried. Like we're all um, kind of viewing this as an urgent issue. Yeah, I, I think young conservatives are, are trying to play that role at the moment my perception I, I don't really know but yeah so you've obviously done a lot of work on this i'm curious what you've learned about the impact that political polarization has had on getting climate policy you just hinted to one of the biggest issues but i wonder if you would talk a bit more about that yeah and i don't want to oversimplify things here i think this Got is it. a it's a much more challenging problem than we you know when we when we conduct our research we um we really need to kind of simplify things into answerable questions. So we'll kind of, you know, it's a hugely complex problem. We'll bite off a chunk and we'll say, can we understand a little bit of this part about what's going on? So, in, you know, in answering this question, I don't mean to be oversimplifying. No worries. But that said, let me oversimplify. Hey, hey. Part of the reason we, part of the reason we're so polarized on climate change is because we're polarized on everything. And climate change is just kind of along for the ride. Like there's no fundamental reason why liberals and conservatives should disagree about the reality of climate change um, or about how we might actually solve climate change. Um, part of what we see though in the US and, and I think actually we see this around the world is that we're locked in this kind of partisan battle. And so that engenders a mindset, you know, it's almost like a sports team where like it's, it's my side and your side. And what I want is for my side to win and my side winning means your side losing. And sometimes this makes sense, right? So um, in elections, that's exactly how you want to think about it. Like if, if you lose, we win. That's just kind of the way our two-party electoral system is constructed. Mm -hmm. On major issues of the day, whether it's climate change or infrastructure or education or healthcare, like you, us winning and, and you losing, th those are not the same thing, right? These are problems that we have to confront together, but we sort of carry over this competitive mindset. And so because of that, you know, you'll, you'll often see this dynamic, like a, a democratic policymakers will, will kind of espouse some policy recommendation. Republicans will say, oh, well, they're suggesting that, then the opposite, must be what we want. They'll never say that explicitly, but they'll kind of say like, hey, they, you know- they I mean, pretty much. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Once you have those in place, the ordinary people sort of follow along. And, and I don't mean, you know, I'm not saying that like, oh, we're not thinking for ourselves, but you know, like I trust certain politicians more than others. Um, you know, I, I, I trust, I trust people on the left more than people on the right for, for various reasons. And so they say, well, here's my policy recommendation. I'm like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, if Mitch McConnell comes out with a, with a, speaking as a Democrat, if Mitch McConnell comes out with a climate policy, I'm going to be a little more skeptical. Like, I don't know if he thinks it's a good idea, like, can it really be a good idea? I mean, what about all these other things he did with Merrick Garland and all this stuff? And so once we're in that mindset, like it's really hard for us to think about the ideas for the sake of the ideas themselves. Definitely. And I guess like two years ago now, there, there was a, were a flurry of kind of op-eds from leading conservative thinkers that were 
backing um, some version of a revenue neutral carbon tax, right? So the typical idea here is like you increase, you increase the tax on carbon emissions. If you make things more expensive, people are going to do less of it. But if you are more conservative in your leanings, like you don't want to grow the size of government, you don't want to create this like hugely massive kind of government entity. So you offset those tax increases with rebates or refunds going somewhere, whether it's capital gains or like direct to consumers or the number of ways you can do that. But the basic idea is like, we won't make government bigger. We're just going to sort of shift what we're taxing. Right. And a bunch of conservative economists kind of signed on to this. Fine. In addition, there were companies like ExxonMobil that signed on to this. And it was really fascinating. If you looked, so they, they um, had this op-ed that they published in the New York Times. And it's all like super reasonable in the op-ed. And then you go to the comments section and you could see comments from the left that were like, well, if ExxonMobil is part of this, like it can't be good. Well, okay, but like we're not going to make a transition away from fossil fuels without some sort of cooperation Mm-hmm. from the fossil fuel industry. We're not going to like cut off that industry and destroy the economy. So we've got to be willing to, to think and sort of play with the other side. And you see the same thing on the right too, right? Like there's a really nice um, study that sort of tracked Democrats and Republicans view toward the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And before it was called the Green New Deal, you'd sort of give the proposals and you'd say, what do you think about these proposals? And there was a lot of agreement. Democrats and Republicans were like, yeah, that's pretty good. Once like AOC tagged on to the Green New Deal and it really became sort of a prominent AOC type thing, then you get this huge polarization. The Republicans start to say, wait a minute, I didn't realize it was that. And now they start to like the policy less, right? And so I just want to drive this home. We react to the political framing and we're doing it on both sides. So this is not like a blaming the conservative issue this is a we're all doing it well there's got to be a solution to this man like we I, I, I say that but then i think back on thousands of years in human history and it sounds like we've been kind of doing the same thing over and over again but now everyone's got a loudspeaker and a social media platform so everyone can hear them uh what is there anything you've learned about the way people think to kind of fix these biases and get us to, ch- to work together because i believe we're all pretty similar like you kind of said in the beginning of the podcast we all are looking for the same thing we want a prosperous society we don't want someone coming in telling us what to do every single day but we and but we all and we, but we all want to feel like we're the ones who came up with the idea as well so like i don't know what to do and i think a yeah. lot of people I mean, are looking for answers Americans care a lot about bipartisanship, actually. I mean, it's, it's, we don't always act that way, but um, when you ask people to kind of reflect on their values, it's actually something that, that they will often say when they consider sort of political dynamics. They're like, I, I want, I don't want to be just led by one party and not the other. I want, I really want to be kind of bipartisan in the way that I think about complicated issues. So the, the underlying values are there. You know, to some extent, it, it's really about being engaged as citizens, about, about voting and participating in just the democratic process, but, and also about making your views known. And what, it, what I mean by your views, your views about bipartisanship and cooperation mm-hmm. and being willing to kind of express that and act those values and views with your vote or with your donation. If we look at what actually happens in, in the sort of political system, so we think, let's think about the primary system. 
very few people actually turn out to vote in the primaries. And we have this huge, hugely weird dynamic then where in the primaries, especially kind of at the state level, people move very much to the extremes because they're trying to please the primary voter. So when you move to the extreme, you end up, you know, you're trying to win the primary because you don't win the primary. Like you don't even get a shot at the, at the bigger ticket. Mm-hmm. You move to the extreme and we select people who have these more extreme stances. And especially in a context where a lot of like house seats, for example, are not that competitive. It's really all about the primary. It's not about the, the kind of main election. And right. there are some systematic problems there. But one of the things we can do as citizens is, first of all, say, like, we, we need to stop with this gerrymandering thing because it's sort of contributing to this polarization problem. We can think about asking the parties or demanding of the parties to consider alternative ways of running the primaries. So when you have like open rank primaries, you see less of this process. Um, And we can show up and vote for the primaries. I mean, that that point that very few people actually show up and vote in the primaries. uh, You know, I'm I'm calling most of us out as not showing up and voting in the primary. So get out and vote. (laughs) I didn't skip I waited online at CU for like almost an hour to, to vote and then he lost, but whatever. It's cool, man. Um, so a little transition here. I mean, you've obviously thought a lot about this politics stuff as we all have been sitting in our homes, uh, reading social media and seeing the ridiculous election stuff that went on in the last year. I appreciate your perspective on that. I just want to focus a little bit more on climate change at the end here. I'm just curious what your personal thoughts on the most effective solution to decrease carbon emissions. Yeah, well, there's a reason I've been going on about politics that right. we, it's going to take big top-down policy changes Interesting. to solve the climate challenge. Um, you know, it's, it's great, to get, it's great to, to get people engaged and, and concerned and, and active and advocating for climate solutions. Um, we can sort of, you know, we, we know we can look at these changes that are going to have to happen and sort of translate that into how we're going to have to change our own lives. So people make a lot of, um, you know, sort of common recommendations, eat less meat. That also has health benefits too, by the way. So like, that's a good thing. So I've heard. Uh, we, we, so we don't need to all be vegan, just less, just let mm-hmm. less, um, electrify everything because if you electrify then once you get sort of renewable energy, like you're, you're better able to make that transition. Um, so there are things we can do as consumers, lower your, to lower our carbon emissions, right? You're maybe familiar with the real estate business. So like there are considerations about like the way we set up commutes. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, think about setting up a commute that takes into consideration the overall carbon footprint. Right. Like eventually when we go back to the office, and we've got to do that commute every day, like uh, maybe the trade-off about like a smaller place that's closer to work versus a bigger house out in the suburbs, like maybe it's not worth it. We want to live a little bit closer to town. Denture housing, right? Like, do we all need to have single family homes? So a lot of these kind of things, if we, if we look at what the policy implications will be, we can say, well, we're going to have to make these changes. At the same time, we're not going to get there by lots of individual consumers making those changes. And part of the issue is it's not just our country, it's, it's the whole world. So 
you know, we look at, at regions of the world where, where people are living in poverty, less so increasingly, we're, we're doing a lot to bring massive parts of the world out of poverty. But let's think about what it's like to live in those regions and sort of ask yourself that question, can the world, can the planet bear everyone in those regions living the way we do? It's not gonna happen, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I, I'm so um, kind of invested in and in understanding the political barriers is we're really gonna need some big policy solutions. And so we need to kind of solve those problems. And, you know, the other, the other part, you change in the, the kind of individual consumer behaviors, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, like smoothing that transition. So like, yeah, if we've got to change our eating habits or like our commuting habits or, you know, our housing habits, how can we make that less disruptive? How can we make it feel less like we're not able to kind of do what we want, get what we want? Yeah. There's, there's, there are a lot of questions you can, you know, if you're interested in psychology or social science, there are a lot of really pressing questions that we need to know the answers to. I think it's so cool. I love it. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts today. You definitely make, make a compelling case for, for the top-down approach to solutions. But I'm trying to incentivize people in the economy to make changes on a consumer level. So we're not going to give up on that either. But transition here, I want to hear a little bit about your experience as co-director. I suppose probably ties into what we've been talking about of Center for Creative Climate Communication and Behavior Change, also known as C3BC. C3BC. Well, you know what's fun is starting a new endeavor, planning a big launch, and then COVID comes along. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we'll put the brakes on things for a little bit. No. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's been a lot of work and, and um, a lot of challenges, but, it, but it's a lot of fun. And, you know, the, the, the front range of Colorado and CU in particular, because, you know, got to highlight Go CU. Buffs. I mean, we're, um, we're one of the best universities for climate science in the world. And everyone kind of understands, like you want to understand the basic climate science, go to CU. What is a little bit less widely recognized is that we also are home to the kind of basic social behavioral science, the, the kind of creative arts and humanities that really are about changing culture. And again, like, if we implement these large scale societal challenges, our culture has got to change too. How do we convey the way the culture changes? How do we motivate people to make those changes? So, you know, I was saying earlier, like you got to get out and vote and, and participate in, in democracy. That's all well and good. And I hope everyone in the podcast does that, but um, you, know, you got to motivate people. You got to tell compelling stories. You got to make them feel like they can make a difference. Um, we need to think about all of this as, as part of a collective effort, that it's not just about the sort of hardcore climate science. It's not just about this sort of political psychology, political science side of things. It's about really understanding what the barriers are and then crafting a creative kind of expression of culture to bring about that change. So that's the motivation. Love it. We're, we're getting up and running. Um, you know, look, <laughs> we got a web page. Um, we've awesome. actually been doing it. You know, it, it's like I said that, you know, COVID came along. And so we, we didn't do a bunch of things that we were planning on doing. And then toward the end of the, of the year, we're like, all right, we got to get our act together and really sort of just express what we're going to do next year. Let's start by just making a list of things we've done in the past year. And we were like amazed. We're like, that is an amazing amount of high impact work 
that we've collectively been doing. And now we're going to launch into the next year. So keep an eye out. Yeah. Shout out Beth Osnes. Uh, thank you guys both for, for what you do. It's amazing. Your inspirations to me. Uh, it's been an honor talking today. Little couple, one more couple general questions to end the show. How do you think we can use what we know about human behavior and psychology to just foster a generally more positive society? Because one of my pet peeves about uh, being an entrepreneur and starting your own business is a lot of people are like, mm, I don't know if that's going to work, man. And I'd much prefer everyone to be like, oh, that's so cool. Like, get going. Like, just general thoughts on that. Just making the world a better place. More positive, more uplifting, optimistic, better. Yeah, better. Sure. In my opinion. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to fall back on my, go back to, you're asking about how do we make good decisions? I, yeah. You know, I think we really need to identify what the data tell us. Let's learn to, to think more critically, um, not skeptically, not negatively, but just critically, like what, what, what's actually going on. And um, I, I really enjoy reading books by uh, Steven Pinker, who's just kind of, you know, reviewed the, the evidence. I realize there's some controversy in some of the evidence he's reviewed, but like there's a very compelling case that the world has just gotten massively better mm-hmm. over the centuries. And not, not to say that it's all kind of wine and roses like it's like we we struggle with with huge problems but we're generally moving in i mean you just see it in the data we're generally moving in the direction of human progress and what does that mean to continue moving in the direction of human progress well it means we've got to kind of understand what's actually happening like understand that the reality on the ground like you know what are the states of democracy what do we see in public health what do we see in psychological well-being what are the kinds of interventions or changes that are effective and we see a lot of things that we kind of know, but when we see the evidence behind it, we're like, yeah, I need to invest in that. So entrepreneurship, like, yeah, I mean, rising inequality, that's not a great thing, but it is definitely true that in societies that are generally better off economically, they are also happier societies, partly because they then have the freedom to provide this kind of safety net so that people are not confronted with this risk of like, oh my God, what happens if it doesn't work out? I actually think there's a lesson there for the kind of entrepreneur class. Um, Statistically, this is why people are maybe pessimists, right? Like statistically, most of the time these things don't work out. But societally, if you don't have innovators and entrepreneurs, what happens? The society doesn't go anywhere. So we actually need people to take these risks knowing that they're risks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's why they're called risks, right? Sure, <laughs> like, man. If it, if it was a sure bet, everybody would be doing it. It wouldn't be exciting. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I will respond by saying maybe those statistics are the way they are because not enough people are supporting those who are, are doing those ventures. But that's just my opinion. And then, of course, my last opinion for the podcast here is that it's the best time to be alive and it always has been. I think it's a beautiful world and we just got to keep working on it and making it better. Final question for you, man. What advice do you have for young people who just want to create positive change in a deeply complex world with all these crazy problems swirling around? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, all right, I'm going to sound like a, like a university professor here, but like, love it. You got to get educated. You, you got, I mean, the world is just uh, and part of the reason we've had so much amazing human progress is because we've had discoveries 
that enable that progress. We've had, and, and, and not just like in, in, not just that we have iPhones now, right? Like the whole range of, of human progress is really supported by an appreciation of the way things work. Where does that appreciation comes from? Well, it comes from understanding how you actually make discoveries, how you think critically about data. And it's not intuitive, right? That's why humanity didn't have this ability to kind of discover these things for so long. But now we do, but we need to, we need to get educated, right? We, we need to be educated. That's really how we empower ourselves and not only ourselves, but other people, right? You get the gift of education that you've received. You got to pass it along to others as well. Yeah. Sounds good to me, man. Well, Leaf, I'm, I'm glad you decided to, that you used your mind to decide to study the mind rather than do landscaping because it's been an excellent conversation. I really appreciate the focus that you take and it's really been, it's been great talking to you, man. So thanks so much. Yeah, this was fun. All right. All right, everybody. We'll see you next Thursday. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. Take it easy. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.